0: Why are Indian women getting hysterectomies at younger ages? What stops adult women in India from accessing reproductive and sexual health care? And what will it take to remove the taboos around sexual health in India? They do extensive it's very research interesting that the a the lot of the demands. From the Hi, this is Srishti, and you're listening to the In Perspective podcast, where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society, and culture. And in this episode, we're taking you back to a conversation from May 2021, when we spoke to public health specialist Dr. Sapna Desai.
1: We wanted to ask you about um, how women's health policy in India has addressed women's health, if you could tell us about that, what issues have been highlighted, and which deserve greater attention. And what are emerging priority areas to sort of think through and think about?
2: Women's health policy in India isn't a one monolith. In many ways, it's been split up historically into different areas and really started with thinking about maternal and child health. So we've had a very heavy focus on um, two things, I would say. Historically, one was population and fertility, and the other was safe pregnancy and ensuring that women survived pregnancy. So you saw a lot of policies and programs really focus on things like institutional delivery, antenatal care, ensuring that women get the care they need after um, delivery as well. Over the years, though, and I would say much more recently in the last even five to ten years, you've seen that understanding shift um, both globally as well as specifically in India in two ways. Um, One is in the mid 90s, there's definitely was a switch from looking at just family planning and maternal health to thinking about sexual and reproductive health much more broadly. Um, And there are a lot of things that happened both globally and in India that started moving in that direction to think of this more of a paradigm around rights as well and thinking about women's bodies um, specific to their sexual and reproductive health, not just them as producers of children. Um, now the programs and policies I will say followed a bit slower after in terms of changing their focus so we've seen that focus retained on maternal health um, we've seen great gains also in maternal health and you know decreasing maternal mortality for example but some areas that are really emerging and I think deserve a lot more attention as we think of women's health, I like to say women's health through the life cycle. We think about women as, you know, what influences their health in adulthood starting from, you know, when they're born. So from the nutrition they get as a baby through adolescence, through infancy, adolescence, um, their access to services and what really determines those services at that point up until later life. So now I think the big issues, if I were to hone in on them, as we expand our understanding of women's health, I'd say three things. One is definitely looking at how gender itself influences women's access to health services. So women definitely access health services across the country, but which services do they access? How do they access them? And for what? We really see the influence of gender and some of the work I can go into after with you. The second is non-communicable disease. So one of the leading and Big priority areas now for women's survival is going to be things like cardiovascular disease and non communicable diseases that, you know, we tend to think of as lifestyle diseases, diseases that um, affect wealthier women or women in the West. But that's not the case at all. We actually see the burden um, incredibly high, particularly in parts of India. Um, amongst women around heart disease and then the factors that lead to it. So you have diabetes, obesity, heart disease, et cetera, and some cancers are things we need to be really concerned about. And then the third, I'd say, is sort of medicalization or just a lot of intervention. So what we see is um, with family planning, for example, the leading um, use of, or the leading reason, uh, I'm sorry, the leading method of family planning is still sterilization. So, tubal ligation of women, it's still the absolute leading way in which women um, deal with their own fertility uh, it, as opposed to other methods. So, it's sterilization. The second is we see a really rapidly increasing use of cesarean sections. In rural areas, in poorer women, we're seeing um, you know, in addition to the already urban use of them, we're seeing really a massive rise across the country in C-sections. And the third is hysterectomies in terms of, again, um, intervention in women's bodies. Now, this varies place to place um, across India, but um, that entire idea of intervening in women's bodies seems to be a common theme uh, throughout the country.
1: I think these are are really uh, important sort of high-level points for us to reflect on as we start this conversation. I'm especially curious to know that um, why do you think we've ignored, you know, the incidence of non-communicable diseases like cardiovascular disease? Like you said, there's this perception that it's the disease of the, you know, privileged woman or the disease of the woman in the West and not really a disease that you see in many parts of India. So why do you think there's this kind of... um, you know, negligence towards looking at this incident. So I think
2: it's changed. It's uh, we go through most countries go through what's called an epidemiologic transition, where you first, I mean, the in earlier. Period certainly in India, really the burden of disease was around infectious diseases. So you and you still see them, of course, but malaria, tuberculosis, respiratory illnesses, diarrheas, et cetera. So you see this big burden of communicable disease. Um, and as we've improved, actually, as um, incomes have risen, as social determinants have been addressed, things like sanitation and just basic preventive capacity, vaccinations, etc. cetera, as we've improved in those fronts, you also see that not as and as people survive longer non-communicable disease becomes more important um, we are in a interesting situation state by state in the country though where many states kind of have the double burden of disease as we call it where both are equally or you know similarly prominent in terms of the burden of disease so you have both um, still this kind of persistent infectious disease burden and with it um, NCDs now if I give you an example um, We recently analyzed data from the National Sample Survey in 2018 that looked at any morbidity women experienced in the last 15 days. And if you look at it across the life cycle, you see that by far the largest proportion of women who um, reported experiencing any illness in the past 15 days were women above 60. So, you see that, you know, it's relatively small in infancy, adolescence, etc., below 10%, it starts to rise after 40, and then really shoots up in the older age group. So you're seeing just reported morbidities, and most of those were related to either musculoskeletal, so you know joint pains, arthritis, things like that, as well as things related to heart disease. So you are seeing that shift over time. So I wouldn't say that we've ignored it, but I do think it's now really come to the fore. There is um, national policy now to really start thinking about NCDs much more seriously and to think about screening, for example, which is one of the best tools we have to identify um, risk factors early on in life, catch them and ensure that the changes are made.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think that's really important and I'm sure a point that not, not a lot of people are aware of in terms of the sort of epidemiologic transition that we see um, in countries. And I think generally with so many of these diseases, like we've also done videos on how cardiovascular disease, you know even the ways in which they manifest in women, this symptoms of a heart attack are not widely understood, which is why you know they're often missed. So I think there's definitely work to do on a lot of fronts there. Um, one of the important things that you highlighted was the sort of shift from speaking only in terms of you know, women and child's health and focusing on pregnancies to sexual and reproductive health at large. So what would you say are the main challenges with um, Indian women's access to treatment to sexual and reproductive health problems, and what about for adolescents and young women?
2: So I'm going to start with adolescents and then move on to older women. So again, the focus, we do have a tendency to think of women as mothers first, and that does influence how services are organized. I mean, there's no denying that historically, and in many states, it remains to be a heavy, heavy focus on maternal child health. That said, um, you've seen expansion of these kinds of services to things like um, reproductive and sexually. Um, tract infection, reproductive tract infections, or STI, sexually transmitted infections, so things like the symptoms women face around discharge or infections, et cetera. So you do see those services have expanded, along with addressing things like violence against women. That said, um, I was recently, uh, my colleagues at the Population Council did a large study in Uttar Pradesh and Bihar that studied adolescents and adolescents from 10 to 19 Across the two states, in a huge sort of state representative survey with very large samples. And one of the things that emerged that really struck us was that when we looked at girls and boys reporting that they had, and these are unmarried adolescents reporting whether they had any of these symptoms of STIs as we know them or RTIs, they had an equal proportion of boys and girls reporting um, that they experienced symptoms, yet two thirds of boys sought care. Uh, as opposed to only a quarter of the girls. And that was a pretty stark, you know, reminder of it's not necessarily access, but who chooses to go for care. And even when we, look, we dug deeper into... Um, where they sought care. We found that girls and boys sought care totally differently. The boys tended to seek the chemist um, or the private sector where the girls were using more clinic-based care. It could be for a variety of reasons, but it's important to realize that these patterns are different, but girls were definitely seeking much less care. And I think what research has shown us over the years, with adolescents in particular, is that the the shame, the the, the ability to feel comfortable with a provider, um, is really critical. And to have services that are, as they say, adolescent friendly, they're sensitive to adolescents' needs. Um, you know, it's an ad, even if a woman is sexually active, is the um, provider going to be sensitive to that, or is she going to feel worse about going to seek care? So there's a whole host of issues around that, but we definitely see a big gender divide when it comes to seeking care.
1: If I could just ask a follow-up there, because I think um, intuitively and in terms of anecdotally, you know, what we've read is that there's often like a misrecognition of or, or a lack of recognition of, you know, even that this is a sexual health issue or that I'm undergoing this problem and this is what it is. So did that survey not find that? Because like you're saying, it there's a similar reportage. Then do you think there's more awareness on that front? and this is sort of forming a barrier in terms of the stigma around seeking care?
2: Well, the infections or the symptoms of infections could be of many things. It could be from anything from a like a yeast infection to bacterial vaginosis to something that's sexually transmitted. So there's a wide range of um, things that can be um, related to. So I think the fact that girls are reporting that they had the symptoms, yes, probably reflects an awareness that there is something going on. What we don't know, and I think this is where you really need to speak to girls directly, um, and I think this is probably a theme that runs through uh, thinking about women's health, is really asking women themselves and the importance of asking them themselves what they're experiencing um, because they know their symptoms best, but also what services are appropriate for them. Um, So in this case, I think we weren't able to understand whether... The awareness wasn't there that it's an illness, but since you were reporting symptoms, one would assume that you know the girls that were seeking treatment were seeking them for a reason because they knew there was something that could have been just really difficult to deal with or to manage. Does that answer?
1: Yeah, sure, that makes sense. So, how does this shift when we talk about access for adult women and how they access um, care for reproductive health issues?
2: So, great question. So, what we find, um, again, as we get older, and I recently looked at the National Family Health Survey to look again at women's treatment seeking for these same symptoms. So, it's literally looking at it through the life cycle. So, we first looked at adolescents and then looked at women uh, to say, well, what proportion of women actually seek care when they experience these symptoms? And this was a question that was asked, again, nationally representative sample in the Family Health Survey. And you find, again, there are incredibly low Um, rates of seeking treatment, but it really varies state to state. Um, But, you know, on average, let's say maybe two out of five may seek treatment, uh, depending on the place. So the barriers, again, from all of the years of research that's been done by many people on the ground, um, speaking to women themselves, typically relate to either the the difficulty, the shame, the embarrassment, the sort of culture of silence around women's non-maternal issues. So if there's white discharge, if there are other symptoms, they don't know how they'll be treated. But then there's a second really important one is can the system even respond? Is there a doctor, a, a female gynecologist, for example, or a female nurse who can be available and respond to these? So I think they're both about the access of appropriate services in the system as well as, um, you know, women's own fears uh, because the culture that's been created around these issues.
1: Absolutely. And I'm just curious to know that how does that, um, I mean, like in the case of adults, since you've spoken about, you know, the relationship that you have with, say, family or parents or caregivers and how comfortable you are with speaking to them about it. So how does that change when you're looking at this, you know, in incidence of married women and uh, how comfortable they are again with speaking to their families about these kind of issues. There's
2: a long history of research in this very area looking at why women weren't seeking care for these sorts of infections and certainly um, There's some, I mean, I wouldn't say this is a large proportion, but some proportion of the research has identified issues like, um, again, fear that, oh, is she uh, up to, you know, is this uh, extramarital affair, even if these are symptoms of something not related uh, to sexual transmitted infection at all. So there was some of that, but I think a lot of it really deals with um, the knowledge and the ability to seek the right kind of provider and ensuring that that service is available close to home because often these services are available, let's say at a district or even a block level when they need to be really primary at the community level when it comes to community-based care where women can seek it and there's that ability to do so. And moving beyond the infections to things um, that I study a lot, which are sort of gynecologic ailments, so excessive menstrual bleeding, cysts, fibroids, all of the issues a lot of women face, of course, um, pre-pregnancy, but certainly after as well, uh, much more so. So around those, we found in our research that... um, at least in Gujarat, for example, that women had a lot of support from their families in going through the treatment seeking process. So that wasn't the issue. It was much more on the supply side in terms of what was being provided what is available in terms of gynecologic care that is not maternity related that is gynecolog- gynecologic and also at the primary level you know and i remember interviewing rural women in gujarat who had sought three to four opinions i mean they were going you know across the district to seek opinions because these are really difficult things to live with the excessive bleeding the pain Yet, so they were willing to seek care anywhere, but to ensure that care is appropriate to them, convenient to them, and affordable is really the challenge, I think, when it comes to these sort of issues. And this is where women's health needs a much more expanded view. if you can bear with me for one more second, it's it's an expanded view on not just gynecologic care, but often what happens in your reproductive life cycle actually influences your risk for non-communicable disease as well. I always say these things are all connected. So when a woman undergoes menopause, for example, if she undergoes a surgical menopause, i.e. a hysterectomy, and her ovaries are removed, let's say, with it, so she no longer produces estrogen, she's at a much higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And this has been shown in many settings outside of India. There's been, even in Australia, a recent study that found um, women who undergo early hysterectomy um, have a much, not much, but a higher risk, excuse me, of all-cause mortality, of dying from anything, but specifically around the non-communicable diseases. So you see cardiovascular disease, stroke, etc all being linked. So you can actually look at a woman's life cycle almost in two waves. You can look at her reproductive life from when she first has her period to pregnancies, um, whether or not she's sterilized, the hysterectomy, and then how that really influences later outcomes. So it's really all connected. So it's important not to think about gynecologic care or maternity care or, um, you know, infection care, but rather really thinking about a woman's life cycle. It's challenging to translate into services, but that is really where the challenge is.
1: You spoke about hysterectomies, about that example of a hysterectomy. So Could you tell us about why do so many young women undergo hysterectomies in parts of India and what kind of state interventions are needed to address this problem?
2: Great question and it's something that certainly occupied a lot of my time over the past decade. Um, So, hysterectomy is complicated when we think of it at a population perspective. So, I'll just break it down. And what we found, um, so the first time we actually ever studied it at a national level was the National Family Health Survey in 2015 and 16. So, that was the first time that question was asked of women across the country, which was a very basic question, have you had a hysterectomy? And these are just women um, between 15 and 49, so in what we call the reproductive age group. And the overall prevalence looked fairly low, around 3 or 4%. But when you break it down um, by state and by age group is when the numbers become very striking. So two things we found. One is in four states of the country, Andhra, Telangana, Gujarat, and Bihar. Um, in women just in that 40 to 49 age group, you are seeing proportions like in Andhra and Telangana, about one in five women have already undergone the procedure. So that's 20% of women before they've reached 49 And on top of that, when they underwent the procedure across the country is incredibly low. It's young. So it's around 31 in those two states and a little bit, I mean, nationally, it's, you know, in the mid 30s. So what you're seeing is that for women who do undergo the procedure, They are um, basically entering, I mean, even if they have their ovaries still, they still have changes to their bodies. But many of these procedures, women's ovaries are also removed. So they're basically entering menopause in their mid-30s. And everything that goes along with that in terms of removing um, estrogen or the circulation of estrogen in your body and the whole host of issues related to that, like I um, just said, around osteoporosis, non-communicable diseases, et cetera. So why is this happening? So in the places it's been studied and has been studied in several states in Maharashtra, Gujarat, different researchers um, and activists and policymakers have been looking at the issue, and we've um, been part of maybe two or three consultations even in the past um, five years with government, with gynecologists across the country. I mean, it's definitely come, and you would have seen lots of news coverage of this as well, that it's definitely come into the public discourse as an issue. But when we dig into the why, um, Knowing that, of course, this varies place to place. One thing that was strikingly common across was that lack of appropriate gynecologic services. Why are women undergoing it medically? It's because they're typically facing excessive bleeding, and they're facing um, excessive pain or discomfort in their lives, um, and these are things that could be uh, symptomatic of a cyst or fibroids or other issues um, known kind of in this whole family of symptoms called dysfunctional uterine bleeding. So. It could be for something that could be treated by removing a cyst, hormonal treatment, for example. There's a whole host of different treatments that are possible, but they're not always the first thing um, that providers suggest either. So what we've seen is this is really an issue in rural India, particularly the early hysterectomies. When I've broken it down across age and across the country, you see that older women also have high prevalence of hysterectomy, but in urban areas, whereas it's rural women. Uh, young are uh, undergoing it at younger ages in the states where it's common. And this is definitely not the same across states. And that's important to remember because we have a lot of lessons to learn from other states then in terms of how they've addressed gynecologic care differently. The third factor could definitely be around the supply. There've been a lot of side so kind of thinking around, is it health insurance itself that is incentivizing providers to say, hey, here's a woman who's coming to me with um, dysfunctional uterine bleeding or you know, all these other issues attached. The insurance pays for the hysterectomy, um, but it may not pay for all of the other treatments, for example, or this could also be a, an incentive to make money. There are many different reasons, and I always argue it's not one of them. There's the lack of gynecologic care. There is the skewed health system that is, you know, really not focused, A, on this kind of care, but B, doesn't finance or allow for these services to be accessed freely in the public sector. Um, for gynecologic care and then there's also a culture of thinking about the womb I mean something that we hear quite consistently in the research that's been done in rural India at least is well you've had your children why do you need the uterus anyway and it's a kind of common refrain it's doctors it's women it's their families etc because there is this sense of I need to get on with my life and you know the uterus if it's the cause of illness might be easier to remove Um, So it's really a whole host of complicated factors, but I think the interventions are um, probably, again, at those three levels as a result. So you need to ensure that we have access to gynecologic care. Gynecologic care is part of primary care. So when a woman experiences bleeding, when a woman experiences these symptoms, like we saw with the rural girls in Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, we need to ensure that they're actually seeking care. For those symptoms and that care is best sought at the local level within the primary system now has these health and wellness centers so that would be a great place to start i think raising awareness around these issues talking about them having them become part of how we think about women's health you know even people growing up in urban india may not hear about gynecologic issues menstrual bleeding you don't hear about it as much and it's certainly not something that's well understood i think in generally, when we think about our bodies. And then the third would be ensuring that the system doesn't incentivize um, these sort of interventions, that the health system, whether it's through the financing or through the options available, doesn't incentivize wanting what I call the permanent solution, but rather finding and treating um gynecologic disorders as they should be, which is with as little intervention as possible, starting hormonally, etc. And we've seen other countries in the world go through this, where there's a huge um, spate of hysterectomies in many countries in um, high-income settings. And then those numbers have come down as care has expanded, as awareness has raised that this is really harming women's bodies. So it's not impossible, but it is something that deserves a lot more attention.
1: Absolutely, I think that's really interesting. Um, I did have one question though, because I think in in all of the sort of discourse that we hear about, especially from a historical perspective, it's been so linked to um, birth control and family planning, so and I was curious that that doesn't come up as you know one of the reasons. So I was curious to know if, if there's been a shift there from how hysterectomies are also looked at, So is it more for you know dealing with gyneco- gynecological issues which are misrecognized or not treated properly?
2: Actually, we found that the vast majority of women who have undergone hysterectomy have already been sterilized. So there's no reason to think that this was a family planning operation. So just quantitatively, when we look at the data across India, that doesn't emerge. What does emerge, though, is that, um, like I said, it's rural women, so there are issues probably around the access to care. So you, I mean, again, think of it in the life cycle. So they've undergone sterilization the average age is about 26. And then the hysterectomy follows about seven to eight years later, um, depending on the place. So it doesn't seem to be linked. There are some uh, relationships that I do think deserve further reflection on that, though. One is sterilization itself could cause later um, gynecologic morbidities. And there has been work on this historically and in many places. So is that itself a risk factor for hysterectomy? I mean, the data don't play out that way, but I think it deserves probably a lot um, more understanding of those patterns. The other is, I think, this whole culture of intervention. So you're done with having children. The ties, ties are, uh, excuse me, the tubes are tied, um, and now this gynecologic issues. Is, okay, let's remove the uterus, you know. And then before that was the C-section. So you are seeing this increasing culture. Amongst certain states and certain areas of just intervening um, surgically, which I think is really dangerous. And that's where I see the connection more so than the hysterectomy being used as family planning.
1: That's really interesting. That's definitely an interesting um, point to note there. And um, also if... I think for a lot of us, you'd also pointed out, you know, give, with that example that you've given about getting an early hysterectomy and how that puts you at more risk for different issues. But if you could also tell us about, because um, I think a lot of our listeners and viewers might not be aware of what are the issues with a hysterectomy. And I think even amongst, our groups or in discourse, you know, that we have, I think there's that common notion that, oh my God, period pain is so horrible or whatever. I just wish I could have a hysterectomy, you know, that there's no understanding of what does it actually entail? Or like you said, how does it affect your life more broadly? So that idea of the womb is only linked to giving birth. I think is still very, very strong, even, you know, even, um, amongst the urban middle class so could you tell us a little bit about what are the problems with with the hysterectomy and and why it's been understood in this way only linked to the womb and not though of course you've kind of touched upon all of that before as well
2: so great question again i think it's important to remember it is a very important procedure that is can be life-saving and it certainly can um, improve and prolong women's lives when used for the right reasons. And it's important to remember that it's not all um, bad, and there are many women for whom it's completely indicated, but it typically is indicated later in life. In India, we have this um, unique situation where you see women much younger um, who are undergoing the procedure, and I think that's where a lot of the danger um, or the risk factors come in. Because imagine in um, the mid-30s, if a woman is having her uterus removed and in in the situation where it's both the uterus and the ovaries, you basically enter menopause. What we know is, is that puts you at much higher risk of osteoporosis, um, cardiovascular disease, i would mentioned, strokes, etc. cetera, um, due to this. And I've just recently, we don't have very um, much research on that in India. I've just been looking at um, a set of, Research has been done on older women and men across the country. And interestingly, what we did find, again, these are causal that I can't necessarily say one caused the other, but there's certainly a strong association between women who've had a hysterectomy and the risk of diabetes, osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. I mean, it's quite stark in terms of that, even when taking care of other risk factors in there. So we do see an association in India, in other parts of the world, this has been quite, um, again, evident that, you know, research from Australia, from the United Kingdom, from America, that women who undergo an early hysterectomy, I and it's important to make that distinction. So women who undergo it, you know, pre so let's say, you know, before their late 40s, um, those women have been shown across contexts and across um, settings to have a higher risk of a whole host of non-communicable diseases, if they don't undergo hormone replacement therapy, which also has its own issues associated with it. But it is important that estrogen itself is really important. So then the next question that often comes is, well, what if the ovaries are kept in? And, you know, so the estrogen um, stays even if you undergo an early hysterectomy. But what the research shows um, is that even there, there is a decline in the function of your body once the uterus is removed. So even the ovarian kind of function declines and estrogen declines, even with keeping those in and taking out the uterus. So overall, I would say when not indicated and when not medically indicated, particularly amongst younger women, it really puts women at risk for a whole host of other non-communicable diseases that really need to be addressed because we're facing this kind of burgeoning rise of non-communicable diseases anyhow in the country. And really, this is one additional risk factor that we can actually address. So it's a preventable risk factor, so to speak.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's definitely important to broaden the way in which we talk about um, sexual and reproductive health for exactly these reasons, because as you're pointing out, there are larger issues at play, especially within our country, which um, need to be looked at um, and addressed in whatever way is possible. Um, Another very important part of your work is focused on community interventions and particularly the role that women play and women's groups at the grassroots play with health intervention and nutrition interventions. I think by now, it's almost um, every liberal arts student, at least. And even outside of that, in this course, I think the women's group being associated with information dissemination about health and sexual education, I think that's imagery that we've become familiar with. But could you tell us about how we can better utilize the potential of women's groups for better health and nutritional outcomes? And what does it mean for groups to go beyond information dissemination and actually engage in community building practices?
2: So, I think I'll start with saying, you know, in India, there's a wide range of types of women's groups. And at least in the work I've done, we just recently reviewed um, all the research that's been done in this entire area over the past 20 years. So it was a lot of studies, about 100 studies that looked at How do women's groups work on health? And one of the first and I think one of the most important findings is that there are really different types of groups in the countries. And if I break it down into four big types, I would say there's what a lot of people know as the SAGs, the self-help groups. So the groups that have been formed around the country um, for microfinance and internal lending and livelihoods. So you see those across um, rural India as well as now increasingly in urban areas. The second is um, more kind of open uh, community-based groups that mobilize women in communities and things like participatory learning and action, where it's um, bringing women together across the community with other members to work specifically on health. The third is kind of groups that organize around a special population. So we've seen a lot of um, really important sex workers collectives, for example, like in Sonagachi, um, which a lot of people are familiar with, of sex workers or another population, adolescent girls, mothers groups. So you'll see women of the same, you know, for a certain identity coming together. And then the fourth, I'd say, are these more community-based women's groups that work on a large range of issues like SEVA, um, where I've worked for years. So those are the four big types of groups, and I think they all tend to work on health slightly differently. Um, so you see in groups that haven't come together specifically for health, they have a very important role to bring information to women about health. So even though they're coming together for finance, it's a great opportunity to also introduce more information and ideas to women. It's also um, been shown, and I think some really example, interesting examples we've seen, particularly now with COVID, around the idea of how do these groups mobilize the rest of their community and what can they be what can they do to be a sort of conduit to the rest of the community? So we've seen interesting examples of women SHE members going house to house to monitor um, if people are sleeping under a mosquito net, for example. You know, so things are as part of a malaria campaign or, you know, so being a kind of conduit rather than just focusing on the group. But how do you use them as a way to link to others? Um The open groups and I'm really gonna focus on these two, the open groups, the ones that have mobilized, we've seen really interesting examples, particularly in Jharkhand Orissa, for example, where women have been mobilized largely with a health worker, like with the Ashas and their facilitators, to talk about the issues that matter to them, to engage in these participatory cycles where they identify the problems they face, they as a community together identify the potential solutions and then actually act upon them. This has been shown to reduce neonatal mortality by over 20%. I mean, you've seen incredible health gains by just facilitating women coming together, identifying their problems and identifying the solutions. And that's incredibly powerful because it goes back to a theme I think that underlies all of our thinking about women's health is asking women what they want and what the solutions are, the idea of participation, um, and ensuring that they're a part of both the research about them, the, the issues they face, and also the solutions that are possible. And it's been shown really kind of successfully and effectively in rural India. So this isn't something that's coming, you know, as an ideal picture, but it's something that's being done in practice and at scale in at least a couple of states already. Um, I think, so that I think is the, Best example of how to go beyond information dissemination. But I think even when groups are seen as a, a platform or as a way to reach a lot of people with information, it's important to remember: is this the information they want? And it's important to remember the first step in that should probably be a participatory, you know, kind of assessment of well, what is it that women need in terms of their health issues? What is the information that they don't have, or are there other barriers that they face in terms of um, either accessing health services or other issues that they may want to? Mobilize around. I think, you know, when I think about groups and health, one of the most important principles is that, you know, it should be a shared concern. It shouldn't be someone on top kind of, you know, throwing an external priority, but this is a concern that women themselves have articulated and then can be um, kind of mobilized together amongst themselves and other community members. And again, we've seen great evidence of this working to improve health. I think as I think about um, older women and we think about the burden of non-communicable diseases, those groups are a great opportunity to also start talking to women about the other issues they face and not just about um, pregnancy and maternity, but rather what are the issues they face as they get older and trying to understand from women's perspectives what their local solutions could be.
1: Absolutely. I think that's an extremely important point, and I think an approach that we especially need to take cognizance of as at least in some spaces, people have started having conversations about public health. Is it a broken system? You know, what is needed to fix it? Um, I was also wondering if you could expand a little bit on this idea of why it needs to be um, an approach that, you know, stems from actually asking about what are the problems that women are facing and what is an issue for them, rather than like a top-down approach. And are there examples you can think of where it has been a top-down approach and it hasn't worked out at all, you know, on at the grassroots? Well,
2: I think... Um I'll put it in a positive sense. If we look at the examples of when um, women were pa- participants and they, you know, they had their right to participate in their community intervention, so this example I'd given in the state of Jharkhand, for example, where women's uh, women were mobilized in groups and community mobilization um, across the state of Jharkhand. There was an NGO called EJUD that pioneered the approach in that state alongside other NGOs in other states of the country, um, to really identify the problems women face, we saw reductions in neonatal mortality of you know up to 23%. So you're seeing incredible reductions in really difficult to address health outcomes only because women participated in both identifying the very specific issues they faced and the specific solutions. So for example, in other settings, they found that when women have come together, and it's not just women; this tends to be a whole women at the core, but then other community members attend. Identifying things like, oh, we don't have access to emergency delivery transport. We need transportation to get to um, the facility. So organizing that locally or saying, you know, it's actually um, there's a swamp here that really needs to be drained because it's malaria and pregnancy that was really affecting a lot of women in a certain region. There's um, an NGO in Bombay. Many of you may know Sneha that also employs, employs a similar approach of this participatory um, learning and action where actually women are first you know engaged in groups and in communities to understand what they face and again you've seen these interesting results about realizing that in urban settings it might be slightly different it's not access to services it might be other issues in having local resources within the community that are more important so i think the important thing to see with these participatory approaches is that the interventions have varied place to place to place to place because situations vary. When there's a top-down approach, what tends to happen is some experts will sit and decide, well, you know, the real the issue of the day is malaria, let's say, or maternal health these are the messages we think we need to give, the messages just might be completely inappropriate. I've seen lots of messaging about, you know, vegetables that women don't even access in their own place. You know, so there's a lot of this, you see this complete um, disconnect from the lives that people are leading and then the sort of messaging we think people need, as opposed to finding local solutions. It's just I really tend to focus on the fact that there's so much evidence and rigorous evidence to show that participation does work. And I, you know, to put it another way, if you had the choice between two types of programs, um, one in which it's rights-based and when people are actually a part of their own public health solutions versus one in which external experts decide which one would you choose?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think that's a great question to pose for everybody to sort of think through this and um, I think it's definitely, like, like you pointed out, I think it's definitely important to note like the social factors which often accompanies different health health issues and I think we don't tend to focus on those um, and, and tend to perhaps disproportionately focus on, oh, it's actually you know, about health system and doctors and nurses, and, and we tend to focus on those issues, but don't understand also, you know, the kind of social factors and the role that just focusing on the right factors can have, like you pointed out with, uh, you know, the example of the swamp or emergency delivery or transportation access.
2: I was going to add one thing, and I think something that we've learned a lot with COVID and generally across the women's group space is that, you know, these groups are also a really important way to engage with communities because most public health interventions aren't effective if you haven't engaged with entire communities. This has now become almost a truism that public health needs community engagement. But the how of that um, varies, again, place to place. But these groups are really important opportunity, because a lot of them are already existent, um, you know, in existence across the country, they're really important opportunity to actually reach people, A, to understand their priorities and then potential um, interventions. So even if they're health systems interventions, you still need people um, bringing those together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And finally, I think we have also kind of referred to COVID and, and the sort of things that it's brought into focus or the conversations that it's brought into focus Finally, how, do you, how would you say the COVID crisis has impacted the functioning of women's groups in India um, and what interventions are needed to deal with these challenges? And of course, you can also talk about the positive aspect of it, which you briefly touched upon in the sense, just like making it clear how important it is to engage in community building. So
2: um, we've studied to the extent that was possible, given um, the situation, we studied how groups have been affected in two ways um, with the evidence, Consortium. So one is is that we looked at the self help groups under the National Rural Livelihoods Mission just to see how have they been affected. What we generally found is there's probably three ways to think about it. One is the groups themselves were affected because they couldn't meet. Um, so the financial aspect of that and you know women's own savings etc. But on the same time, these turned out to be a possible mechanism, at least in some places, for resilience. Because women were part of these groups financially, they also had some savings to fall back on That you know, during the crisis, particularly the livelihoods crisis that emerged after the first lockdown um, in terms of having a safety net or a, a means in which to access additional financing and resources from the government. So that's one way in terms of just how they... You know, weren't meeting, but also how the groups themselves were former Brazilians. On the health front, um, the SAGs, for example, were also this conduit for information because there are, again these existing networks already. So people were able to receive information about COVID, which was new. So basic messaging, you know, through phones, WhatsApp, through the basic networks that already existed. There was a huge effort made to mobilize that network of women to get the basic information to them as to what is this disease, what are the symptoms, and what is the prevention. Um, I've seen a SEVA, for example, the approach that we kind of documented the approach as it emerged. And what we found was is that they quickly mobilized again through their local leaders. And it's the idea of having these groups and their community leaders, the local women leaders in each community were quickly activated to again, be the source of information, but also a source for resources, whether it was a family that needed access to services, etc., they serve as a kind of um, the fulcrum that can then, you know, help people mobilize in the ways they need. So I think what groups did was show again the power of being able to activate local communities um of course they can't do everything they can't deliver services they can't deliver um health services just like that but i think it's a great conduit for information now in the long term and i think what remains to be seen is how groups that are financial in um Focus uh, like the livelihoods groups, how will they survive through what's going to be a very difficult time economically? And I think that long term sustainability is something we don't know yet, but it is definitely a risk as, you know, women's livelihoods are affected in general and their incomes are affected. It's very difficult to then be part of a group in which you're contributing savings. It could be. But I think, again, this uh, depends on the sort of stimulus and the send of um, recovery packages also that they have access to. I think groups like SEVA um, have seen again that not being able to meet physically is a challenge um, during this very specific acute phase, but then having the group again as a way to get women access to doctors, to information, to services, it's been incredible. I've been been watching them mobilize and it's just, um, you see the power of having those systems already in place, so to speak.
0: And that's the note we ended our conversation with Dr. Sapna on. This conversation definitely reframed how we look at the womb, hysterectomies and the importance of the womb for women's healthcare at large. We hope it did the same for you. We release a new episode of this podcast series every Monday. So be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios the production company that brings the Swaddles' creative point of view to original podcasts and films.